Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Throughout history, human beings have repeatedly demonstrated a dislike for change. Take, for example, uh, in 1876 when the Western Union Telegraph Company was offered the opportunity to purchase the patent on Alexander Graham Bell's new telephone, the president of Western Union scoffed at the new invention and said, what, what use would our company have for this electric toy? Or early in the 20th century, for example, when the co-founder of 20th Century Fox said, about a, said this about a new technology called the television. Television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. <laughs> or, or in 1943, when the president of IBM said, I think there is a world market for about five computers in the whole world. Or in 1977, just over 30 years later, when the founder of Digital Equipment Corporation said, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Or there was that one time in 2010 when the associate pastor of a church in the suburbs of Chicago said to the tech-savvy youth pastor sitting in staff meeting with him, why would anybody need a tablet called an iPad? And now that associate pastor stands here preaching a message from an iPad Pro. <laughs> so even I am guilty of foibles or silly uh, resistance to change and then realizing, well, you know, I guess that thing's not so bad. I could use one of those. So um, we hate change, though, I think, because we love what's comfortable and what's familiar. Change is scary to us then. Yet the scriptures reveal that God loves change and he even wants to change us. We're continuing our series today in 1 John called Authentic Walk. I'd like to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to 1 John chapter 2. And if you uh, forgot your Bible, just raise your hands and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We have plenty of copies we can loan you. I want to also encourage you to take out a copy of the sermon notes in your worship folder. That'll give you uh, an outline that you can follow along with me and take some notes. There'll be points on the keynote screen behind me so that in the future you can look back, hopefully, on this message and use it to encourage you. Let's review our theme verse for this series. It's 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6 put together. It's on the uh, sermon note handout that you have, and it's also on the screen behind me. Let's uh, say it out loud together. Whoever says, I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that, that's the theme that John continues to sort of hit like a nail throughout this letter, uh, most likely written to uh, the churches in and around Ephesus. John is saying, and he will say continually over and over again, I would boil it down to this simple, this simple idea. Real Christians really walk with Christ. Does that mean that we have to put on sandals and a tunic and grow a beard and sell all our belongings? No. Uh, 
We defined walking with the Lord at the beginning of this series as a long obedience in the same direction. This means that walking with Jesus Christ forces the true believer to change because Jesus always leads his followers to places where they will grow. And nothing on earth grows without changing. No one in world history, in fact, who has sincerely followed Christ has ever stayed the same. Thus, our big idea for today, the sermon in a sentence, is this. Real Christ followers change by growing. Real Christ followers change by growing. You've heard me say that one of the reasons John was writing this letter was the declining witness of the church in the latter part of the first century. The biggest reason for their witness declining was that they weren't growing in their relationship with the Lord. And the same principle that we see every day in the physical realm is also true in the spiritual realm. And that is is that just as things in creation are born to grow in nature, you were born again to grow in Christ. 1 John is uh, one of the more difficult books in the New Testament to outline And this is because John hops around from topic to topic. You're going to notice, you might have noticed last week, for example, I did, uh, I I preached a message called uh, Walking in Discernment Part 1, and then I'm going to do a Part 2 because John comes back to discernment in Chapter 4. He also uh, talks about walking in love in Chapter 3, leaves the topic, then comes back to it again, I think, in Chapter 4. Well, uh, in this today's passage that we're going to be looking at, he sort of uh, zigzags around uh, in a couple ways. So I'm going I'm to basically break the, not, I'm gonna break the sequential order I usually go in, walking through a passage verse by verse, and we're going to have to go to the end of the passage, 9 and 10, verses 9 and 10, then we're going to come back to verses 1 and 2. And so it's not that I have ADD, it's that John does, okay? I just want you to know that. So, so I tried my best to keep it sequential, and I could not come up with a, a, a cogent uh, outline that would make sense going in sequential order. And that drives me nuts because I'm a linear thinker. So, um, so here we go. Look at verse 28 in chapter 2, the end of chapter 2, where he begins a new idea. And now, little children... Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink in him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, here's the first truth that John's telling us this morning. And point number one in your outline is this. Jesus provides the power for change. Jesus provides the power for change. The Lord wants to change us in part because we cannot experience the abundant life that he has for us by staying the same. He also knows we cannot change under our own power. And so he has made available to us the best, most unlimited power source in the universe, his son Jesus Christ. So how do we gain access to this unlimited power source? Well, John says... By abiding in him, in verse 28. Little children, abide in him. Now some translations have, uh, depending on which translation of the Bible you have, some say continue in him. Some say remain in him. John uses the Greek word meno. It, it's, uh, it means to remain present in a place 
or to continue on a current course. It means to stay somewhere for a while. Uh, it appears the word meno in the original text, abide, as is, is, is translated in the ESV, it shows up nine times in chapter 2 alone. Abide, abide, abide. Now, I sometimes fear that the word abide has become so familiar in evangelical circles that it sort of has become Christianese, you know. Just keep abiding in Christ, man. Just hang in there. Just keep walking with him. In other words, I think we've become so accustomed to hearing abide that we've forgotten what it means. And so uh, here's, here's a quote I wanted to share with you that I came across in my uh, devotional morning devotions recently that is helping me gain a fresh understanding of abide, what it means to abide. And it comes from David Roper's excellent devotional book for men called In Quietness and Confidence. Roper writes... Abiding is utter confidence, excuse me, utter dependence, drawing on Christ for all that we do. It means sitting at his feet in solitude and surrender, listening to his voice, asking for his counsel, waiting for his impulses in intercession and action, then walking through the world, trusting and resting and asking for his help. Abiding is acknowledging our inadequacy and our inability to change ourselves one iota. It is moment by moment yielding an active submission of our whole being to Jesus so that his presence and power can be released through our bodies in every circumstance. You know, not long ago I was exercising at a local health club where I have a membership and I know you can tell just by looking at me. And um, I found myself getting tired as I was on the elliptical machine I was using. And, and so uh, in front of me, I noticed there were people less tired on treadmills. And so I decided, you know what, I think today that's a better idea. So I got off of the treadmill, excuse me, the elliptical, and I switched over to the treadmill. And I found that I was able to go much longer and much farther without getting as tired. Why? Well, I realized that uh, when I was on the elliptical machine, I was the motor doing all the work. But when I got on the treadmill, there was a motor built in that was moving and helping me keep going. So I didn't have to do all the work. It carried me further because I didn't have to do all the work on my own power. When I felt like quitting, the treadmill kept going because I had to keep going, and it made me keep going because if I didn't, I would fall off and have one of those comedic scenes that you see on television, right? Well, I was thinking about that this week and how when you're on a treadmill, it's sort of like when you walk with Jesus. You see, when you walk with Jesus, he will help you climb higher and walk further than you could do on your own. When you try to grow on your own and try to change on your own, apart from Christ, it's like being on the elliptical. <sighs> and you're sucking wind, and you're doing all the work keeping that thing going. But when you're on the treadmill, the treadmill helps you go further. And so, John, I was thinking about treadmills and how much easier it is to grow when abiding in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean I won't get back on the elliptical again. I will, but, but, uh, but I think 
I think what we need to remember is that the Lord doesn't want us to do all the work of change by ourselves. He knows that we can't. And so he's provided, through his son Christ, help for us so we can change. John next says there's a motivation and an urgency we should have for change. Look at verse 28. He says, so that when he appears, this is, the scriptures unabashedly teach that two things are imminent for us. First, the return of Christ or our death. And we don't know when either is going to happen. It's so, uh, stu- students, for example, prepare for final exams at the end of the semester because they know they're coming. They know there's an exam coming. They, they, they study and learn their subject to avoid the embarrassment and consequences of failure. Some of you earned a living as teachers, and so you know what I'm talking about. Just imagine teaching a class of students and not being able to give a grade and not being able to give an exam. How motivated would the students be? You see, John knows, and the Lord knows, we need motivation to change. And so he's saying, he's coming back. Jesus is coming back. You don't know when, but you want to be changing and growing and abiding in him so that, it says it right there in your Bible, you may have confidence and not shrink back in shame, not be embarrassed, not, not, not have Jesus come back and say, what have you been doing? With everything I gave you, what are you doing? He's urging those that claim to know Jesus to live for Jesus like there's no tomorrow because none of us have been promised tomorrow. To quote Jesus from the parable of the talents, he told the parable on purpose to say, it's going to be like this when I come back. Matthew chapter 25 is where it is. Jesus is either going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, or he's going to say, you wicked and slothful servant. What, what were you doing with what I gave you? So how do we apply this? What do we do with these first couple verses, verses 28 and 29? I like to give practical applications so that we can be doers of the word, not just hearers. And so I think the first application is this. We need to ask Jesus to work as we walk. Ask him to work as we walk. If you walk with Jesus by learning his word and applying it to your life, the Lord promises to give us the power and the grace we need to change. This might sound overly simplistic, but you'd be surprised how many believers try to change using their own strength. Trying to change apart from Christ only leads to frustration, but trying to change abiding in Christ leads to transformation. And so real Christ followers change by growing Uh, Look at uh, the text again, verse 29. He says, if you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Here's number two in your outline. Authentic Christians possess proof of change. They possess proof of change. John says, you know that someone's been born of him if they practice righteousness. Some translations say fathered by him. One of the ways you can tell a parent and a child are related is that uh, one looks similar to the other. Similar hair, eye color, skin. John is saying that if we are children of God, and he uses that language, that turn of phrase in chapter 3, verse 1, then we should look like our Heavenly Father. 
or look like Christ. The world should be able to tell that we're related to him. And one reason for this is, is that the best advertisement for the gospel are the lives that have been changed by the gospel. That attracts the world when they see that somebody's been changed and is excited about their faith. Next, look at verses uh, chapter 3 and then verse 3, and then I'm going to read 6 and 7 as well. Here We're hopping around because John's doing some zigzagging. Uh, verse 3, he then says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And then verses 6 and 7, No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, and he is righteous, just as he is righteous. So here's uh, uh, letters A and B on your outline. Uh, next, what John is saying is that the proof of genuine faith is practicing holiness. The proof of genuine faith is practicing holiness. He says that no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Now, at first glance, this might seem like, oh my goodness, I have to be perfect? Of course, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying we will never, ever, ever sin again. Instead, I, what John is saying here is that, well, he's making a couple points. First of all, genuine believers are known more for their righteousness than they are their sin. Meaning, what stands out about them is their righteousness. Their sins are not as noticeable because their faith in Christ and their commitment to holiness is bigger and greater. Their lives are marked by spiritual progress instead of sin patterns. Real Christians are not perfect people. They are imperfect people that are being perfected by God. The other point I think that John is trying to make here in these verses is that he's trying to refute the false gospel that teaches that people can profess faith in Christ but still love their sin. And John is saying, no, 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 you can't do that. No, 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 because the proof you've been forgiven is the proof that you've forsaken sin and you're following Christ. You see that in verse 7. Let no one deceive you. Don't be duped into thinking that someone can profess faith in Christ, say, yeah, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, but continue to live like the world. John says, no, 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 you can't do that. We heard this back in the early part of chapter 2 where he says, if you know him, then walk like him, and if you don't walk like him and you claim to know him, you're a liar, he says. I think it's in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. The verb tense that John uses in verse 7 for let no one deceive you, uh, it's a, it indicates that this was already happening, that some were already being deceived. It could literally be read, um, let no one keep on leading you astray. Stop believing this false gospel of, of profession and no life change. Then he says in verse 7, whoever practices righteousness... Now, you've heard me say before that when there's repeated terms, uh, we need to look, at, look for repeated terms when we study the scriptures. In the ESV translation, the term practice is repeated um, several times in chapters 2 and 3. If you have the NIV translation, it simply is just rendered does, whoever does righteousness. Okay? Um, to practice, as you well know, is to repeat a behavior 
until it becomes a habit or until we become proficient at it. So the apostle, I think, is saying that like a musician works at their instrument to improve at it, authentic Christ followers should work at their walk with the Lord by abiding in Christ, spending time with him in word and in prayer. And the use of the word practice, I think, also reminds us that there's a pattern and a passage of time. It's not, spiritual growth isn't instantaneous. Change isn't instantaneous. It happens over time. Genuinely saved people are forever changed people, is what John is saying. They're not perfect, but they are progressing. They are growing. The frequency of sin that they struggle with is getting less and less. Next, look at uh, verses 4 and then 8 through 10 as John hops around here. He then says he's contrasting now from the person who knows Christ that practices holiness. Now he's going he's gonna to show us the other person who professes Christ but still practices sin. So he says, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And then verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. By this it is evident... Who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So here's letter B, the contrast that John is giving us. The proof of fake faith is practicing sin. The proof of fake faith is practicing sin. So he turns his crosshairs onto unbelievers that profess to know Christ. And you've heard me say before in this series, there will always be more people that profess to know Christ than actually do know him. Jesus talked about that during his ministry, and all the apostles mentioned it as well. This means that the longer a person is stuck in a sin pattern and not growing spiritually the more it raises the question, did they ever know Christ in the first place? To the Apostle John, professing to know Christ but living a life of sin is, is out of place as a Republican at a Democratic National Convention <laughs> or a Dodger fan sitting in an Angels fan section or a teenager without their smartphone. It's just incongruent, doesn't go together, doesn't work. It's illogical to John. And he's saying that such a person that professes Christ but is practicing sin either must change their name or change their behavior. False converts have been a problem in every age of the church. This is probably why Charles Spurgeon wrote during the height of his ministry in London, England in the 19th century. He wrote this, uh, if your life is unholy, your heart is unchanged. And if your heart is unchanged, you are an unsaved person. If the Savior has not sanctified you, renewed you, given you a hatred of sin and a love of holiness, then he has done nothing in you of saving character. 
The grace that does not make a man better than others is a worthless counterfeit grace. Now, I want to make sure that you don't misunderstand me here. I, 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 I said this earlier in the series, I think in, in week two, um, about walking in obedience. One of the tactics the adversary uses to keep us from praying for the salvation of others and witnessing to others is by convincing us that they are already saved when they're not. By convincing us that because they made a profession or because they demonstrate some behavior that looks spiritual, that they're okay with Jesus. And John is expending himself throughout this letter to say, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Here's the proof. Don't be duped. Don't think your loved ones and your friends and your coworkers are okay unless you see these proofs here. Here's the proof that they've been changed, that their faith has changed them, that it is real. Now, I don't want to stand up here and say, just don't sin, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. And as I was writing this message, I was afraid you might somehow leave today. Man, what was the point of the message? Don't sin. I don't want you to leave here thinking that. And so let me, I don't think that helps us, so let me get a little more practical and get specific on how to defeat sin in our lives. How do you defeat sin and how do you change if you love Jesus, you want to please Jesus, and you want to walk with him? So here's uh, your second application. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says to put off sin and to put on holiness. He uses language like... uh, Garments are like wardrobe language. He, he describes the old self sort of like an old coat. Take it off, throw it to the side, put on the new self, put on Christ. And there's, throughout Colossians 3, verses 5 to 14, there's this put off, put on, put off, put on. We do this by stopping sinful behavior and starting the Christ-like one. It's replacement, Instead of living your life as, don't do that, 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 don't do that. Man, I did that. (laughs) Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Help me not to do that, help me not to do that. You know, like focusing on the negative. Instead, what the scriptures counsels to do in Colossians 3 is replace the sinful behavior. Do the positive. Do the Christ-like behavior. So, for example, if you're struggling with anxiety, Paul would say, stop worrying, but also start trusting. So, so uh, if you struggle with lustful thoughts, he would say, put off lustful thoughts and replace them, put on pure thoughts. A more specific way to do this, and I really wanted to be simple and make this memorable for you, so I'm going to give you three words that you can jot down. It's repent, memorize, and pray. And let me explain how this works. When you have a sin pattern, say it's anxiety or lust, or lying, and you give in to that sin pattern, you give in to that sin, the first thing you need to do is say, Lord, I'm sorry for doing sin A. Would you help me by your grace and by your spirit to do Z instead? Help me to not lust, but instead to have pure thoughts. Help me to not get angry, but instead to be patient and kind. Next, the next thing you can do to preempt that sin to get ahead of it before it comes up and you're tempted to do it again, 
is to memorize scriptures that target the sin. So, for example, um, uh, if you struggle with anxiety, you might want to go to Philippians 4 and, 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 and memorize verses 6 through 8, where Paul says to um, not be anxious about anything, but to let the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding reign in you. If you struggle with anger, you would not only want to memorize scripture verses that talk about unrighteous anger, but also verses on gentleness and patience. Next, after repenting and memorizing scripture, because scripture retrains your mind, and scripture also changes your heart. And as you're memorizing scripture, and you're looking at the verses throughout the day, and you're reviewing them, and you're learning them, the truth of God's word with his spirit gets into your mind and into your heart and helps you change your thinking and change your heart. So, next you pray scripture. So, Father, if I was to deal with anxiety, Philippians 4, I would say, Lord, help me to not be anxious about anything. Help me to be thankful today and help me to put on the peace that surpasses all understanding. I can tell you from personal experience that by repenting and then memorizing Scripture and then praying Scripture in the areas where I struggle and have sins that nag me, I have been able to make progress in my walk with the Lord. I'm not perfect. I still struggle with certain sin patterns, but I can tell you I do them less and they don't bother me as much as they used to because I have worked at learning the scriptures, retraining my mind, and asking the Lord to help me grow in these areas. Real Christ followers change by growing. Let's look at... uh, Verses 1 and 2, and then verse 5, as we finish our zigzagging for today and hopping around John's ADD writing here. John says in in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And then verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So here's number three in your outline, the final uh, point, and that is that God's word presents the purposes for change. John is, is listing the purposes for change, why God wants to change us, and he gives us some motivation as well. Because our inherited sin nature, because of our inherited sin nature, we can sometimes try to do the right thing with the wrong motives. For example, the Pharisees were rebuked by Jesus for being religious. They wanted to conform to the rules of the time and be seen as super spiritual people. But Jesus saw right through the external to their hearts, and he knew they're not where they need to be. They're, they don't love me. They don't, they don't, they're not an example worth following. It's that they, they wanted to earn their salvation instead of receiving salvation from the Lord. And they wanted to try and change themselves as opposed to letting him change them. And so John wants to make sure in these final verses that I read that that 
we are being permanently changed by the gospel and that we're changing for the right reasons. And so here's A, B, and C, the motives that he says we should have and the purposes. Why should we be motivated to change and grow? Well, because of God's amazing love. That's letter A. Because of his amazing love. In verse 1, John says, See what kind of love the Father has given us. The word used in the original language is a fascinating uh, word. Uh, the word forgiven, it means to bestow or to endow. It's, it's, more than, it's more than handing a worship folder from an usher to somebody to coming into the worship service. It's, it's more than that. It, 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 the, the word give that's used in the Greek text describes the kind of gift that's been given it's a lavish, luxurious, valuable gift. So it's not a simple transaction between two people. It is the bestowing, the endowing of something of great value. And when it's put, the word, it's, it's didomai in the original language for given. When it's put with kind, or depending on what Bible translation you have, sometimes it says what manner of love the Father has given to us, John is saying in essence this in chapter 3, verse 1. The kind of love the Father has lavished upon us is of such fine quality, there is no other love like it. It is, it is of the greatest value. It is like silk or jewelry or gold. It's, it's not everyday love. It's not the the common love that we see in the world. It is a fine quality, top-notch, rare kind of love is what he's trying to convey in chapter 3, verse 1. And when we begin to grasp how much the Lord loves us, it should motivate us then to grow spiritually because we want to love him back. Next, John says we should be motivated to grow because B, our Father wants to make us like his Son. Our Father wants to make us like his Son. He says in verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him. This is important to note because the text just basically destroys the myth that, that if you just vote Republican, despise homosexuality, condemn abortion, and support gun rights, then you've reached the height of spiritual maturity. That is not at all what the goal of God, I don't think he cares about all those things as much as he cares about making us look more like Christ. Making us look and live and think like his son, Jesus Christ, is the main goal he has for us. Paul wrote this in Romans 8, 28, 29. The Father's working together all things for good. And we love to quote verse 28, all things working together for good. But then verse 29 explains how the good, according to Romans 8.29, is to conform us like, like Play-Doh, like clay, to conform us into the image of his son, to make us look like Jesus. That is good to the Lord. That is what he wants for all who call him their own. Because there was no better person to have walked on this earth than Jesus Christ, there is no higher honor than to be made like him. Finally, 
we should be motivated to grow because, let her see, our sin hurts the heart of the Father. It hurts the heart of the Father. In verse 5, John says, He appeared to take away sin, meaning, in other words, no one can profess to know Christ but continue in habitual sin, living like the world, because that absolutely defeats the purpose for which Christ came. He's saying since sin made it necessary for Jesus to come, continuing to live in sin defeats the purpose for which he came. Thus, when we play around with sin or we don't take our sin seriously, we break the Lord's heart because it, it's as foolish as going to the gym to work out and then getting in your car and lighting up a cigarette. It's, it's, it's as antithetical as being cured of cancer and then going back to smoking or whatever caused the cancer. John is saying you don't profess Christ who came to take away sins and then continue to love sin. Doesn't compute for John. Doesn't make any sense to him. And so if you listen to the scriptures clearly uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see God crying out from his heart, stop sinning, you're only hurting yourself and you're hurting me. We know that the Lord has emotions, because, for example, in Ephesians 4.30, uh, in the context of chapter excuse me, verse 30, chapter 4 of Ephesians, uh, Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit, and wrapped around in both sides of the verse is sins. Uh, continuing in sin and habitual sin grieves the Holy Spirit. So, what's our application these final verses. I think we need to make our motivation a love for Jesus. I think we need to make sure that the reason we want to change and grow is because we love Jesus. He doesn't want us trying to earn our salvation, trying to perform for him. He doesn't want us to burden ourselves with trying to be Christ-like under our own power. He wants us to obey him because we love him. Some of you have had the privilege of meeting our family dog. Um, he's a four-year-old multi-poo named Rigby. And uh, he's working his way up to the position of mascot for the church. Uh, in a matter of time, he'll be there. I apologize for those of you who haven't met him yet. I, I forgot to put a picture of him in the keynote. I've done that before. But I love Rigby because he gives me lots of good sermon illustrations. Um, well, that's not the only reason I love him, but I love him for other reasons too. But one of the many things that makes Rigby so much fun is that he loves people. He just he makes you feel like you are a VIP and worth more than a million dollars when you show up at our house. Granted, the downside of that is that he is not a guard dog and he would not scare away any burglar at all. He would welcome a burglar or a prowler with great enthusiasm as a new friend. But there's one person that Rigby loves more than anybody else in our family. And our whole family knows this, and that's mom. The reason that Rigby loves mom, and, and we, we can see this all day because... 
Wherever mom is, Rigby is. If mom is in the restroom with the door closed, Rigby's right outside the door. If, if mom is somewhere else in the house doing laundry, he's right outside the laundry room door. And so in fact, the kids have figured this out, that when they need to find mom, they, they used to walk through the house going, mom, 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 I call that mom radar, mom, mom, and they just keep saying mom until they get a hit, mom, 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 hey. Now they just walk through the house and they go, Ribby, where's mom? Because they know the dog will always be pointing to where mom is. Now, the reason why Rigby follows and loves mom so faithfully is that every morning, mom sets him free from his cage. You see, Rigby knows mom is the one that has set me free. And he is forever loyal to her, will protect her and follow her, and is super affectionate to her because she is the one that gets me out of my cage. You know, the scriptures teach that Jesus, if he's your Lord and Savior, he has set you free from the bondage and shame of your sin. And because Jesus is the one who sets you free, then he should be the first love of your life. The one that you enthusiastically greet each morning when you get up and open your Bible and spend time with him. The one that you look forward to meeting and seeing on Sundays when we gather for worship. Because without Jesus, you'd still be in bondage, you'd still be in your cage, captive to your sin. Before we close today, I want you to hear uh, that there's hope embedded in this passage. And one fear I have is that you might go home today just hearing, don't sin, don't sin, don't sin. Instead, I want you to hear the truth that's embedded and implied, it's kind of just under the surface of this passage, is that Jesus can change anybody. He can change anybody. This means that if you have a loved one that's caught in sin, they don't need more counseling, more money, more medication, a better job, or a new spouse, or a new house, or a new car. They need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. These verses are also a reminder that Jesus can change you. That if you are struggling with a sin pattern that leaves you feeling defeated and ashamed, the Lord can help you change for the better. And he wants to. And so I just want to encourage you this morning as we close uh, and invite you to, to join me as a church. To, let, let's, let's commit as a church to walk more closely with Jesus today than we did yesterday so we can look more like him this year than we did last year. Because real Christ followers change by growing. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, I realize that some listening to this message today may find that they... 
the thought of stopping a sin is an overwhelming thought to them because they've been stuck in that sin for so, so long. It's all they know. Lord, if there is anyone here today or maybe listening online or watching on our podcast that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, Father, would you reveal Jesus to them? Would you, by your grace and by your Spirit, move in their hearts so they can be born again? So that they can be set free from the bondage of their sin and receive the gift of eternal life and hope in Jesus Christ. Lord, for those that are stuck in sin patterns that they feel guilty about and they've been so ingrained, and Lord, would you please use your word and your spirit to help them break the cycle of that sin pattern? Would you, Lord, push back the adversary who wants to tell us the lies of it'll always be this way you'll never be able to stop or you'll never be good enough or you're all alone Father please would you refute those lies with the truth of your word that we're not alone and that Jesus Christ has the power to help us stop sinning in that Jesus in his great love for us doesn't expect us to be perfect when we stop sinning he just wants us to make progress please Lord would you encourage those here today that need to hear those truths we thank you Lord that you loved us so much I'm blown away by chapter 3, verse 1, Lord. <laughs> With such a fine quality manner of love that you've endowed or bestowed upon us that, that Lord, you not, only, you not only made Jesus become a substitute for our sin on the cross, but you've used him to provide forgiveness and the power to say no to sin. So we stop hurting ourselves and shooting ourselves in the foot damaging our relationships and hurting others. Thank you, Lord, for having that wisdom and that care for us. We love you, and we, we just ask, please, would you remind us of these truths as we go back to our routine, we go back home, we go to work tomorrow. Would you remind us, Lord, of what we've heard today and help us apply it to our lives. Help us to change so that others can see the gospel is real and it works. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.